Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from April of 2017 on safeguarding scientific information. To find out about future science cafes, please visit ummnh.org. My name is Amy Harris. I'm director of the Museum of Natural History at the University of Michigan. We're the organizers of the cafe series, and we've been doing this for 10 years now, and we're very proud of that. Tonight's program is called Safeguarding Science, Expanding Access to Public Data. Before we get started with the cafe, I'd like to ask you to join me in thanking Connor O'Neill's for making this room available. Um, So now I'd like to introduce Kira Berman, who is our Assistant Director for Education at the museum. She's the mastermind behind the Science Cafe series. And here's Kira. Thank you, Amy. So today we're going to talk about safeguarding science. We're going to talk a little bit about data, and we'll talk about certain kinds of scientific data that may be more endangered than other other kinds. And we've got some wonderful experts who have agreed uh, to lend their voices to this topic. So I hope you're as excited as I am. For those of you who might not have been to a science cafe before, um, we have each of our speakers give a brief presentation. I've asked them to be a little bit provocative, uh, so I hope they will be, and to get you guys thinking. And then we'll, uh, we'll have some time for discussion of those presentations at your tables. And that, then at the end, I'll moderate a group discussion. So that's our format this evening. I'd like to introduce these four speakers, and I'll introduce them in the order in which they will speak. So the first person I'd like to introduce is Justin Shell. He's going to start us off. I'm going to introduce all of you, so don't start when I finish you. Oh, oh you will. Yeah. You're all set. Uh, (laughs) uh, Justin Schell is the director of the Shapiro Design Lab, a peer learning and project design community at the University of Michigan Library. As a core member of the Data Refuge Project, he's helped to organize more than 30 data rescue events around the country um, since January. That's a lot in a small period of time. Busy guy. Um, Before moving to Michigan, he was a filmmaker and counsel on library and information resources postdoctoral fellow at the University of Minnesota Library. He directed We Rock Long Distance, a feature-length documentary film that weaves together the stories of three hip-hop musicians. He founded the Minnesota Hip-Hop Archive, also housed at the University of Minnesota Library. So I hope you'll uh, welcome Justin Schell. And uh, Paul Edwards is Professor of Information and History at U of M. He writes and teaches about the history, politics, and culture of information infrastructures, especially climate models and climate data. Uh, Edwards is the author of A Vast Machine, Computer Models, Climate Data, and the Politics of Global Warming, and co-editor of Changing the Atmosphere, Expert Knowledge and Environmental Governance, as well as numerous articles. He is distinguished faculty in sustainability at the Graham Institute, a senior fellow of the Michigan Society of Fellows, and director of graduate studies in the U of M uh, Science, Technology, and Society program. Please welcome Paul Edwards. 
And Paul is missing another event, so I'm extra grateful. And and that event had something about saying goodbye. So my hope is that if if I don't allow you to say goodbye, that means you'll have to come back to the U of M, right? Just a little arm twisting happening here. Um, so um, Catherine Morse is the uh, government information law and political science librarian at the University of Michigan Library. Catherine has been helping researchers find and use government data for over 16 years. She provides research assistance and instruction in support of the Political Science Department and the Center for Political Studies, and is an instructor for the course Digital Research, Critical Concepts and Strategies. Please welcome Catherine. And so if I ever want to find information online, you're the person I go to, right? Okay. Uh, Jake Carlson is the Research Data Services Manager at the U of M Library. He works with U of M librarians to apply their knowledge and skills to help researchers better manage, share, and preserve their data. And then he translated that. Um, he (laughs) He says, in other words, he explores how librarians can help researchers do more with their data than just letting it die a slow, lonely, horrible death on their computers. Um, one of Jake's responsibilities is overseeing the development and growth of Deep Blue Data, the library's data repository. Deep Blue Data repository helps researchers share their data and helps the library to curate and preserve this data as part of their digital collections. So please welcome Jake. All right. So now um, Lisa's going to turn my mic off and I. Justin, you should be good to go. Cool. Thank you very much, Kira. Thank you, Lisa, for helping out with sound. Um, As you said, I'm Justin Schell. I run the Shapiro Design Lab. And um, I'm going to start us off tonight by giving a little background on the Data Refuge Project, um, how it got started in 2016, how I got involved with it, and how I've basically spent every day of the last four months working on it. Um, And we'll also uh, finish up with uh, three kinds of themes that have come up through this project that have opened up to much larger conversations that make this uh, project like Data Refuge um, not only really exciting, but also really, really daunting and complicated. Um, And so each of uh, my co-presenters will talk about one aspect of that that will lead us nicely into uh, the larger group discussion. So... In uh, December of 2016, I was on Facebook, like you do, and I saw a glaring headline uh, from the Washington Post saying, uh, Guerrilla Archiving Event in Toronto. Scholars rush to save scientific data uh, from the incoming Trump administration. From statements he has made, Trump has made, statements that members of his transition team has made, um, it made a lot of people really nervous about... um, the sustainability of different environmental programs um, and environmental information, and we've seen a lot of that in the in the come true in the in the recent months. Um, and so, this group of people at the University of Toronto School of Information put together what they called a guerrilla archiving event and said, "Let's get a bunch of people together and download as much data as we can." At the same time, the climate journalist Eric Holthouse uh, put together a spreadsheet and tweeted out. Hey, everybody, I'm really nervous about climate data going away. Put any data sets that you're worried about into this spreadsheet, and I'll work on getting them downloaded. Both those things sort of blew up. 
And uh, that spreadsheet got really big and really unwieldy, and the Toronto event spawned these other 30 events that have happened. Um, when I got involved, uh, it was through some friends of mine at University of Pennsylvania. When I saw that Facebook post, I was like, okay, we're going to do something in the lab. Let's figure out what it is, but we're going to do something. At the same time, one of our uh, librarians uh, wanted to do a more coordinated effort within the library, and so working with Michigan faculty um, to identify what uh, sets of data, what kinds of information were most important to them. Um, so we had these two parallel tracks going on of you know surveying faculty, um, figuring out you know people who said, well, that's my satellite. I'm really concerned about that. Like I helped build that satellite. Please make sure that data is okay. Um, that's what, those are the conversations we have at a place like Michigan. Um, and so when it came time to do this event, we still were like, we don't really know what goes on in an event like this. Uh, so I called up some friends who are at the University of Pennsylvania and said, hey, are you involved in this? And like, yep, let's talk. And so uh, that turned into going out to the University of Pennsylvania Library to help run their event. It turned out, unbeknownst to me, I was running half of their event. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you know, um, and then uh, once I had that experience, I'm like, okay, cool, we can do one here. And so we did one in Ann Arbor in the design lab, um, and I had 300 people come in over two days. And it was this really amazing response, people coming in to say, I want to help. And, um, you know, being able to, for them to say, like, we just wanted something to do. Um, we wanted to feel like we're contributing to something. Like, here you go. And so what we did during that event, and this has been the core of the Data Refuge project, has been working on two different things. One has been going through, and in partnership with this uh, group, the Internet Archive, and the End of Term Project. Internet Archive is where uh, web pages get saved, and the web gets saved. You can go back and look at what uh, the University of Michigan's website from 2000 looks like. It looks really funny if you do it. I highly recommend it. Um, and so they have mechanisms where you can save websites directly to their, their servers. I think we ended up, I think there was like 300 million websites saved this year through this end of term crawl, which happens every four years. Um, Catherine may correct me on that number. It was something, it was somewhere between 200 and 300 million. It was a ton of stuff. But the way that crawler works and the way those, those websites are saved, sometimes there's stuff on there that can't be saved through that. You know, it won't go into that kind of way. So if, say there's YouTube videos, because those videos are hosted someplace else, they're not hosted on the same uh, server as that website, those won't get crawled, those won't get saved. So that was an easy example. We could just get those videos else, elsewhere. Sometimes there were these gorgeous interactive visualizations, animations, and we had no idea what to do with those. So this is when we uh, started developing some methods to get that data in different ways. Um, you know, we we called our developers, we called our librarians, we called our you know scientist friends, all these folks to come in and help us better understand this kind of data, and better understand how we can get this and how we can preserve this and make it available for the long term. Um, and so, like I said, we had 300 people at our event. We saved over 19,000 URLs to the uh, Internet Archive. Um, we downloaded. Actually, one download is still going from the January event. It's an, e it's an EPA data set. Um, this, is what, this is why you have your, you know, your IT folks from the library on board with you, because they can just set it on a server and let it, just let it run. Um, and it's a, it's a database and a 
data set that's really important to a lot of, of fracking activists. And this came from a survey that we did of the Union of Concerned Scientists and a number of different environmental groups. Um, so we had this huge outpouring of you know, support and energy. And so we've had 30 events since then. Um, we've you know, refined our procedures. Um, and as we've learned more about this, this project, we realized, and we knew it was complicated going in. We're librarians. We, we, you know, we know information is complicated. Um, but we put ourselves sort of smack in the middle of three really gnarly, gnarly sort of trends and themes and realities. Um, and these are what my, my co-panelists and co-presenters will talk about. Um, one was what we sort of shorthand as the war on science. The not just distrust, mistrust of scientific knowledge and the production of scientific knowledge, but the active obfuscation, defunding of scientific uh, knowledge production in this country and around the world. Um, and so, you know, if you hear Jeff Sessions, or not Jeff Sessions, well, which one, um, you know, Scott Pruitt say, you know, we just need more research on this. You know, we, it's not conclusive. We don't need, we just need more research. That's a refrain that goes back many, many years uh, to, um, to going back to the, the Tobacco Research Institute, um, trying to produce more research to show, um, you know, that cancer, uh, cancer actually wasn't caused by cigarettes. Um, so we have this kind of thing where we have, and I think, Paul will talk a little bit about this, and we, there was a sort of a playbook from the Harper government in Canada um, of defunding libraries. Um, you know, there's a photo of a shipping container full of books that are from closed down libraries and things like that. Um, so how how does this project fit in to that? Um, how can it be a counter against that? Uh, we also, you know, realized how complicated government data can be, um, and how the government infrastructure is not very good in terms of you know, maintaining and producing this kind of data. Sometimes it's in a really old format on one website that barely works. Uh, sometimes it's on a really glorious page where you can just say, download all, and it downloads everything, um, and everything in between. Um, and at the same time, it goes to our, our third theme of how hard it is to preserve digital things, whatever they might be. These are, could, could be data sets, which just means, you know, it could be spreadsheets, they could be PDFs, they could be audio, they could be video. Um, things go away all the time for the most innocuous of reasons. Someone, there's, I think it was last month or two months ago, the major uh, Amazon crash that happened, uh, someone just missed a semicolon and took out half the internet. Uh, you know, and so, you know, we talk about the cloud, it's just someone else's computer who controls it, and uh, if it, something goes wrong, then, you know, there goes all your stuff. Hopefully they have it all backed up. And so, so from this moment, from this experience, we've started partnering with much larger institutions, working directly with government agencies to figure out what data is actually vulnerable. Could this be legacy data that's only available on paper, which actually could be more secure than other kinds of, of paper? Is it on weird, like, 2003 Microsoft Access databases or something like that? Um, it's on this one proprietary software that we used in 2005 and never got used again. Great. Um, this is what Jake deals with all the time. Um, and so how do we how do we get that sort of authoritative copy? When we did our these events, we have this app that we can go through and do these checks all the way through. Like, what are the things that you downloaded? Um, how did you get it? What kinds of scripts did you use? Um, what kinds of digital preservation methods have you used, et cetera? But it's still not that 
level of authoritative copy um, that, that you could say, oh, I got this from this government website, and if it gets updated, then it's out of date. So that's been our, our big challenge up to now to uh, you know, expand this project and make this much more sustainable. And so we're, you know, we have a big meeting coming up in May uh, to talk about a lot of these larger infrastructure questions um, and really try to, to harness this energy uh, because of some of my colleagues uh, who are in the, the federal government and in these large-scale data repositories, um, scientists, these folks don't often talk to each other, um, and they are now. And we really need to take advantage of this moment um, to you know, really build something that can counter uh, all of the problems that we're seeing within um, you know, the kinds of, of the, not only this current administration, but in general. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to Paul, and he can talk more about our, our first theme, uh, the war on science. Thanks, Justin. Well, it's a little hard to know what to say in eight minutes about the war on science. Uh, so I'm a historian, but I've been studying the uh, science of climate change for about 25 years. And I go to many scientific meetings, and I've written about the uh, problems of climate modeling and climate data and how they're connected. When the election happened, uh, one of the first things that really made a mark on me in the couple of days afterward was when a colleague of mine came up to me in the hall and said, are you worried about the climate data sets at the EPA? And that thought had not yet crossed my mind. But as soon as he said it, I thought, <laughs> oh, that's a real issue now. And almost Within hours after that, I was contacted by some of the same people in Toronto that Justin is affiliated with who in a, in a different but related project called the Environmental Data and Governance Initiative. That project is right now in the process of writing a report on the first 100 days of the Trump administration and sort of what's happened and what we can expect in the future. And it's just getting going. There's nothing – there's an outline, but there's nothing in it yet. So uh, we can look for, forward to that in the next couple of weeks. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the larger situation and what this really means, because you know, if you're here, you probably are aware of this. If you've been reading the news, you know that we're in the midst of an absolutely savage attack on environmental regulation of all kinds. So the regulation is one of the targets. But within that huge space, the most important attack is on climate change science. And the goal of this is essentially to blind us to any future data and knowledge that might come from such data about what will happen to the climate. So, for example, you know, there's been a more than a $500 million cut proposed to the NASA satellite budgets specifically for satellites that monitor climate change. And we could, you know, I could give you a long list of similar budget cuts that are in the works. Uh, Pruitt, the other day on uh, Fox News, finally said what everyone suspected, that he basically does not believe that carbon dioxide is responsible for climate change. So, you know, the line about we need more research, you know, yeah, that goes back 30 or 40 years, uh, but it's really a smokescreen. You know, this is they're, – they're going to just delete the research infrastructure that supports this knowledge. And that's what I wanted to talk a little bit about. 
Um, I, I don't know if you, some of you in the back probably can't read this cartoon, so I'll just tell you what it says. Uh, these are, you know, kids in the back of this, this earth-shaped car traveling along, and the sign says, you are now leaving the Holocene. And the driver is saying, thank goodness for all the electronic gadgets that keep them occupied on these long trips. Next services? Question mark. <laughs> so they're driving off into the desert of the Anthropocene, and that's kind of where we are. Well, so, I, you know, we see this as an attack on science, but one way I like to picture this, and I think this is a very useful way in the context of this administration. So we have a president now who really wants to rebuild infrastructure. Everybody is on board for that. What he means by that is things like filling the potholes, rebuilding the roads, rebuilding the bridges, and you know the, the sort of hard physical infrastructure that supports our everyday lives. And you know, if you live in Michigan and you drive on these roads, you're behind that agenda too. <laughs> there's, there's nothing wrong with that agenda. But at the same time, what he is doing in the environmental space is attacking another kind of infrastructure, and that's knowledge infrastructure. We have a lot of this, and to call it infrastructure is a way of emphasizing how kind of under the hood most of it is. It's, you know, these big networks of people and institutions and instruments and equipment that produce kind of routine, reliable knowledge that we all count on. So institutions like the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, that track uh, disease spread around the world, they warn us about epidemics. You know, we can just assume that that knowledge is coming, or we could until uh, this administration is even attacking that, which seems like an incredibly bad idea. The national census is another example. You know, every 10 years we count the people. It's complicated, but it works, and we use those data for all kinds of things. Um, nuclear uh, testing, the reason we know about things like North Korea's nuclear tests is an infrastructure that was built during the Cold War to monitor, you know, in that case, the Eastern Bloc, the Soviet Union, especially to uh, be able to detect tests remotely without having to have invasive inspections on the ground. Without that ability, we could never have had the reductions in strategic weapons that happened during the Reagan administration because now you can monitor, you, you can know whether there's been a test. So the knowledge infrastructure we have that supports climate science is similar to that, and it's very big and very old. Let me just talk a little bit about this. So this slide shows surface weather stations with radius rings around them. And we have, you know, top left is 1870, top right is 1900, bottom left is 1930, and then bottom right is 1960. And you see that, you know, during the 19th century and then into the 20th, surface weather stations and weather services were established in most nations all over the world. And they are networked, and they were even then, in the, in, even in the early part of the uh, 20th century. And so we have a global network of weather stations that monitor the weather, and that's how we know what we know about the climate. Because over time, we accumulate all those data, and then we can use them to produce a picture of what has happened over time. 
Wow, that went by fast. <laughs> uh, I've, got, I've just got a minute or so left, so let me just say a few more things. So this is, you know, the data that Justin is working on preserving right now used to be stored on punch cards. Before that, they were just on paper. This is a picture of the entry hall of the U.S. National Weather Records Center in Asheville in the 1950s when they there were so many punch cards in storage that they began to fill up the entry hall with storage boxes. There were billions of them, and they were literally worried that the building might collapse under the weight of all these cards. So their materiality was very present. Everyone knew that these were big expensive, difficult to maintain, you know, really important things, and there were only a few copies because they were stored on this difficult medium. Now they're digital, and they seem kind of transparent and invisible and uh, not very uh, salient to us. So when they're suddenly threatened, we begin to realize, you know, the things that you were saying about the servers and the time it takes to download all this stuff and where are we going to keep it, and yes, it costs a lot to store all that stuff. Um, if you, could you play this video? This is an example of what we learn from uh, weather data. This is just the, the data about the weather that we have over the last 135 years, just about temperature in all the places that you see. And in 29 seconds, we can see very clearly the warming of the planet, especially after the 1970s when it really begins to heat up. So this is where we are. And that's how we know that. We know this from all these data. So the target of the current administration, I, I actually don't think, and most of my climate science colleagues don't think that there is really that much danger that they will go around degaussing computers and you know, literally destroying existing data. The question now is whether there will be new data coming in that continue to allow us to build the picture we have of what's going on. Uh, Justin said to me earlier that the, this climate data system that the federal government put out just in 2014, a uh, portal on the data.gov website called climate.data.gov, uh, listing all kinds of data sets that the government holds and where you can get them. Uh, that's still there. I got this image off that website today, and it doesn't look much different than it did uh, last year. But what will happen to that portal? Will it still be funded? Will, it, will we be able to get things in this relatively easy way? That We just don't know the answer to that yet. And then, you know, part of, I want to tell this one little story and then I'll stop. This is the global land surface temperature done by a group at Berkeley uh, in the early, around 2010, 2011. And it's an interesting story because the guy who led this effort was a climate change skeptic. He was a physicist, is a physicist, named Richard Muller. And he decided that he was going to prove that the data sets collected by NASA and NOAA and the UK and the Europeans and everyone else in the world were just you know, faked or fudged or somehow uh, mishandled so that they showed warming that wasn't really there. So he decided he would he would collect the biggest collection ever of data from surface stations and reanalyze it. So he did that. 
And this data set contains about 35,000 stations toward the end. I mean, there weren't 35,000 stations in the 1800s, so that they aren't there in this image either. But it is by far, it's far larger than any other climate uh, data set uh, about the history of climate. So as they were finishing up this project in 2012, uh, Mueller was called up before Congress to testify. And being a, a pretty good scientist, uh, he decided he would tell them exactly what he had found. The skeptics were just waiting for this, and they said, you know, wait till Mueller tells them like it is, you know, because he knows. He's done this giant collection. Well, he went up before Congress, and what he said was, we're almost done with our analysis, and you know, it looks pretty much like all the other analyses, and there they are. The other, you know, the black line is Berkeley, and the, the blue, the green, and the red are the other three major uh, data sets that are out there, and they all look pretty much the same. So Mueller converted himself with this, and then went on to do this weird uh, kind of curve-fitting exercise where he decided that he would just look at carbon dioxide and temperature next to each other, and guess what? They correspond, so it must be carbon dioxide, and they were right all along. So, the, you know, data really, really matter. And not just data about the past, but the data we're going to collect about what is now the present and will become the past. I'll stop there and hand it off to my next colleague. Thank you. So I'm a librarian, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how I work with researchers to use government data. And I've had the experience quite a few times where a researcher is looking for something. Maybe we have a citation. We can see that it was clearly online from, say, 2002. It's no longer there, and it wasn't archived. What do we do? It's a big problem. Um, sometimes the solution is to call the agency that created it, hope they kept some kind of record of it. Sometimes it involves a trip out to D.C. I mean, imagine having to take a trip out to D.C. to look at something that was just online a few years ago. Um, so I've seen... Over the years, this become more and more of a problem. And then, um, after the election, it seems like everybody was talking about it. Um, there's always, ever since the uh, government started putting information online, there has been loss. They haven't had a system in place of how to preserve those records. Every time there's been a presidential administration change, there's loss. And then within the same presidency, there can be a great deal of loss. Um, so one of the first questions you might ask yourself is, why doesn't the government preserve this? Why aren't they doing this? There are presidential records laws, and there are other kinds of like records laws. Why isn't this something they have to do? So there isn't any kind of mandate that federal agencies have to preserve their data in a way that is useful to other people to use. So that's something that you know we could maybe ask of them to do, and maybe in the, someday in the future we'll get that kind of mandate. Uh, but right now there isn't anything really compelling them to do it. Um, when they put their data online, um, they're doing it because they want to, 
and then they'll take it down when they feel like nobody wants it or they want to take it down for some other reason. So another question you might be asking yourself is, well, the Internet's been around for a while. Why hasn't somebody figured out a better way to do all this? Um, we ask ourselves that every day. So like a library, like libraries get stuff and keep stuff and we keep it for a long time and why didn't we figure this out? And my answer to that is because it's hard and also it's really, really huge. This is a really huge problem. So to give you an example, um, so the government, the U.S. federal government is the world's largest publisher, right? They're the biggest publisher of information. And uh, Paul mentioned that before punch cards, data was kept on paper. And we have a lot of paper volumes that have been sent to us by the government, reports and some aggregated data, things like that. And we started getting those back in 1884. So from 1884 to now, we ended up with a big collection of like two and a half million things. That's pretty big. And our total number of books is like around 10 million. So it's a, it's a sizable amount of our total collection is the stuff that the federal government sent us. When you think about saving things that are online, the, the numbers really change. So Justin mentioned the um, web archiving crawl at the, that took place before the presidential uh, transition. Um, they got 200 million URLs. So for like, um, since 1884 to now, we've been taking care of two, two and a half million books and we got that down. But the hundreds of millions of URLs is just overwhelming to us. And it's one of the th reasons it's so overwhelming is that the government can't even tell you all of the URLs it controls. It, they don't know. They've got lists of parent domains, but no subdomains. And that's also just for the .gov domain but there's so much content on .mil and .edu, that's where the Smithsonian is, and .com, there's so much social media stuff. So things have changed so much in the way that people communicate, in the way that the government disseminates information, and uh, we have not caught up to that yet. Um, so that's why we need your help, and uh, I think we'll be talking about that a little later. Uh, Here's Jake. So as Justin mentioned, uh, the theme that, that I get assigned is data curation is hard, and it is. And it's, it's a tough one to, to talk about in the context of data refuge because the data rescue efforts have really done a lot of good. The fact that we're all here talking about this, really thinking about what can we do to help, uh, acknowledge a real problem, as Catherine mentioned, that this is not just happening right now. It's happened, you know, during other administrations. Um, transition times are particularly ripe times for data to sort of fall off the face of the earth. Uh, so this is this is not sort of a, a one-time thing. This is a, a universal problem, and we're talking about this now, which is great. Uh, as a, someone who works with data and thinks about how do we protect data, I'm really excited to, to be here and to have all of you here with us. Um, but data rescue, I think, 
there's a lot of good intentions, but there are some problems as well. And as a data curator, it's something that concerns me that we don't ignore or overlook these problems in trying really to, to work with data and to curate it effectively. So data curation is one of those terms that means different things to different people at different times. So when I talk about data curation, I mean three sort of overall things. I mean uh, the idea of protecting the data to sort of uh, have control over it, to, to steward it, to, to ensure it's, it's um, you know, secure and safe. I'm talking about um, making data uh, discoverable by people who want to, to find it, who have a need for it, and to make it accessible, to, to let people come and to download it and to, to use it for their purposes. And I'm really talking about the, the core element of data curation is maintaining and even adding value to the data over time. So looking at not only how can we capture data, but how can we ensure that the people who would make use of it, who would have value too, have access to it, and that the data are suitable for their particular purposes. So different types of researchers use different types of data for different purposes. When we work with data at the library, we think about the community of practice we're trying to reach. So if we get a data set uh, from, say, uh, a researcher in transportation, we think about what other uses or purposes could this data have to advance the field of transportation. And we structure the data, we describe the data, we work with the data to try to deliver it to that particular community. So data curation, I think, really is about community and building that kind of connection between producers and consumers of that data. Um, and I think the challenge uh, that I really want to talk about um, with uh, the data rescue effort revolves around three different sort of areas. This notion of trust, which has come up already. This notion of authority, which has also come up. And this notion of sustainability. So with trust, one of the other issues that we've seen in this election is the issue of fake news, right? This idea that people are putting out hoaxes or misinformation or propaganda and trying to package it as real legitimate news so that you'll believe it and buy into it and, and trust it, even though, in fact, it's wrong. And I think the data rescue effort has a similar issue and perhaps the opposite issue of if we take data out of its original context, out of the people who are producing it and stewarding it and curating it, because it's at risk, it might go away, are we breaking that, 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 that bond of trust? You know, can you trust government data if it were outside of the government context? Would you as a researcher depend on, on your research, on your name, on your reputation, based on data that didn't come from its authoritative source? So can, can you divorce that and still have an effective data set? Um, so, you know, if, if I were a climate change denier, one thing that I might do is sort of piggyback on this data rescue efforts, grab some government data, mess with it, put it up with some legitimate uh, sort of trappings to make people think that uh, it, it's legitimate, you know, maybe put it on epa.com instead of epa.gov, and uh, tell all my buddies about it and get them to raise heck because this data now shows that you're completely wrong. So you're introducing this element of, of misinformation along the lines of what we're doing with, with fake news. And I think that's you know, certainly an area of concern of how can we trust data outside of the context. Even though data rescue is certainly legit and it certainly has people behind it, you know, how do we know that this, in fact, is the authoritative data set? Um, so in the library, one of the things that I do in talking with folks who are making use of Deep Blue Data, our repository, is to try to establish a clear line of, of communication and relationship with them from the very beginning. So ideally, we're curating data or thinking about curating data right from the very point where you're getting the idea. 
one of the things that um, funding agencies now require in, in many cases is for, re is for researchers to write up a data management plan that tells them what kind of data are they going to generate, what are they going to do with that data, and how are they going to manage it and, and develop it, and then how are they going to share it at the end. So there's this expectation now that people need to do more with their data. And ideally, libraries are involved in that conversation right from the get-go. So we're taking a look at the data management plan and making recommendations as to how you can prepare your data for its eventual sharing and deposit into our repository or a different repository. Um, we're working with them as they develop the data to make suggestions about how to organize it or how what kind of documentation is needed for others to understand and make use of it. And then we're working with them at the point of deposit to make that transfer as smooth as possible. So um, it's it's something that, that can be done. It can be done with a degree of authority. So really it's establishing a relationship with the depositor and to capture as much of, of his or her authority and knowledge of that data and to put it into the repository, um, you know, to, so other that people can, can make use of it. So when we get a data set at the repository, we really look for some different things. We look for the, the completeness of the data set. Um, does this seem to have any missing parts? Are there pieces that seem a little odd? Um, do we have all the files that comprise the data set? Is the data set complete? But that's not all that we look for. That's only actually one piece. Data are generally consumed by machines or by software, but they have to be understood by humans in order to be trusted. So we look not just for the content of the data, but for the context. Is there enough information about the data and how it was made and developed, the different instruments that were used, the calibrations of those instruments, all the details that somebody else in that particular field is going to consume the data would want to know in order to trust that data set. So when you, you take that data out as, as um, of its original context, you also can't just grab the data, you have to grab the information surrounding the data, enough really to make it understandable and consumable by other people. And I worry that data rescue, given it's, it's I sort of semi-jokingly refer to this as a smash and grab. You know, you, you go, you grab a data set because it's in danger of being gone right away, but you lose those sort of elements of trust, the context surrounding it really to give the data set meaning. Uh, so that's one area I think is, uh, is of concern. Another one is of accountability. So the whole process doesn't end when you go out to get the data. It's just beginning. And so thinking about in, if you're taking it out of the context, and Catherine's right, like there's no necessarily mandate to make this data available, but there are an awful lot of elements in the, in the government that have really thought about these issues and who have people who are really there to try to make the data set as useful as it possibly can be. They have policies. They have procedures. They have plans in place to do that and to carry that on. When you take it out of that element, those all potentially go away. So what are the policies with regards to the data that data rescue is capturing? Who can use this data? Um, when does it go live? Does it compete with the existing data that's already up on a government website? When that goes down, who decides to, to make it go live? And who, who takes care of it and stewards it and really uh, thinks about um, working with that data? Because it, it's, um, you know, things may change over time. Different data sets might come up, as, as Paul mentioned. How are those connections made between this new data that the government's producing, assuming it goes up, and this data that's now living somewhere else? Over, over in you know a different server or a different place. So this notion of sort of authority over data and who gets to make decisions and um, really figure out what to do with it once you have it. And then there's this notion of sustainability. So again, 
it's, it's right now we're sort of living in the moment. There's a lot of intensity, a lot of effort, a lot of concern with regards to the data uh, that's being produced by the government and its longevity. But if we take it out of that environment, we have the same kinds of questions. How do we sustain this going forward? And so in my field, there are standards around what constitutes a trusted data repository, a trusted digital repository. And they're basically into three categories. There's the organization. So is your organization provisioned and does it have people and staff with expertise really to care for the data? Is your organization really set up to do this sort of thing, to sustain it for the future? Is your organization financed well enough to ensure that you can get not only get the data, but ensure its continued existence over time? Is there enough money and enough of a, a base to do that? And then there's the social te technology. Do you have the technology that's needed to make full use of the data and to serve it out for the foreseeable future? And so Data Rescue, I think, has done a really great job of raising awareness and really getting a hold of a lot of data that's potentially at risk. But there's now questions about, well, what do we do? We have this giant mass of data. How do we actually make it useful and ensure its value going forward, as we would in the library when we curate data? Thank you very much. Thank you so much for giving us uh, a, something to talk about. There are some uh, discussion questions on your table, so in a minute we'll go to discussion. But one of those discussion questions uh, actually has a place for you to have some input into da what data you think ought to be preserved. Are there data that you're worried about? Are there data that you're thinking about? Um, so we've put these large post-its up by the speakers, and you have small post-its at your table. Um, so this is a question that, Justin, you say you always ask. Um, are there specific sources of data and or publications that you are concerned about that could use preservation? So one of the first things these folks want to know is what concerns you, and I think that is laudable. So please consider that. Um, and we will come back uh, in a few minutes after after some discussion to a large large format group discussion. But at this point, I'm going to ask our speakers to mingle with you and ask you to think about what they've said. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm going to try to bring us back together into uh, one conversation. So this is, this is the part where I try to interrupt the great conversations that you're having. It's not my favorite part because I, I, I know that uh, I hear lots of good talking. Yes. Could I get the speakers to come back, back up to the center? So... Um, for this segment of the Science Cafe, I've agreed to moderate. Um, so I'm going to let speakers know when they have the floor and when they don't. And I'm going to be walking around or running around more likely. This is the aerobic part of my exercise this evening um, with this cordless mic. Please use the microphone uh, so that people with hearing impairments can hear and so that we can record your comments for later podcasts. Um, it's very important that people be able to hear your questions uh, when they listen to this later. So please use the microphone. Um, a couple of quick ground rules and then we'll get started. Um, please limit your questions and comments to about 30 seconds to a minute so that lots of people can participate. Um, I'll interrupt you if you go on forever. 
So don't do that. <laughs> yeah, you too. Um, likewise, likewise, um, I'll try to give preference to those who haven't spoken yet, just to so that we get to hear lots of different voices. And I, there's lots of uh, different experience and expertise in the room, so feel free to address your questions or comments to the whole group. Um, so it's not just a question and answer. Uh, although, of course, I'm very happy that our uh, expert speakers can can stay and, and help to get this conversation going. Um, please be nice to each other or else. Um, finally, if you forget to turn off your cell phone and it rings during this portion of the program, I have no idea what will happen to all the data on it. Um <laughs> But please avoid that risk by turning your phone off. Um, <clears throat> okay, does anybody have a question, thought, comment to get us started? We'll start in the back here. Hey, um, this question is probably most re relevant to Justin Shell. Um, it's kind of a two-parter. First is, how is this currently coordinated, um, this effort to uh, preserve this data? And second is, obviously, there seems to me that there should be some sort of pipeline from easiest triage to most complicated long-term solution. Um, could you describe the evolution of the creation of that pipeline and where that currently stands from front to end and any potential bottle bottlenecks that are currently causing trouble? See previous, yeah, see previous conversation for the bottlenecks. Um, so this, this has been coordinated um, by a few different institutions. So Paul mentioned EDGI, the Environmental Data and Governance Initiative, which is a, is a network of scholars, uh, activists, uh, practitioners um, dedicated to uh, environmental activism policy um, and a number of other fields. We're, they're doing website monitoring where they're, they're tracking changes in 25,000 unique URLs. Um, we're hoping to be able to crowdsource some of that, so stay tuned. Um, and the, the University of Pennsylvania Libraries and the Penn Program in the Humanities. Uh, those are two of the main organizing efforts, um, but that has been uh, expanded to people in University of North Texas and Stanford and UCLA and UC San Diego and Indiana and uh, Georgetown and Temple and and on and on and on and on. Um, it is all done basically through uh, the messaging uh, app Slack. Basically, that's how we do it. Um, and we we've started to get you know people who are on call during events to help out with things. But it's been very grassroots, very decentralized, um, and you know we're we're starting to get uh, some firmer structures in place for people who are working on you know the the pipeline piece, which I'll mention and talk more about in a second. Other people who are working on um, you know how do you talk to library administration about this? How do you get buy-in from people or you know the people who control the checkbooks? How do you like how do you talk to them about this? Um, and so these different pieces. Um, that we sort of started setting up, you know, whether they're committees or working groups or things like that. Um, and as we move towards, you know, trying to find this more sustainable um, you know, solution where we've partnered with the Association of Research Libraries, uh, they're working to coordinate this much larger, uh, you know, 90 to 100 plus institutional effort uh, around this project. So lots of, of decentralized uh, grassroots kind of things and starting to solidify a little bit more. Um, but still really, really uh, loose and decentralized. Um, very, clicky, very quickly with uh, the pipeline, um, we were the last one to use this really, really awful spreadsheet in our event that was just a mess. Uh, and so it was 
they had just uh, redone sort of the pipeline for archiving this data after our event, but they, they released it before the second day of ours. We're like, we can't do that. Um, and so I always say, like, we suffered for you for the, the future events. Um, so we have this really nice app that can that can uh, work through, um, you know, being able to, you know, track, you know, this is where it came from, this is how I downloaded you can upload the scripts you did, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, some of the bottlenecks are, you know, the not a, not only the things that Jake mentioned in terms of the larger issues about trust and provenance, but just find some of this stuff just takes a long time to download if we're trying to download it. And if you're especially if you're not on a university internet connection, like this is 60 gigabytes of data. That's going to take all night. Um, and so even if we, you know, we would know, we would be really sure that this is an authoritative copy from this website. Sometimes it's just technical. Um, and so we've been working towards developing more of that infrastructure. And if you have some some skills that you'd like to lend to the effort, please come find me, and I will get you hooked up with the right people. This is mostly a question for uh, for Catherine. Is there really no national repository of digital information? What's the role of the Library of Congress, for example, in collecting, organizing, keywording, storing digital information data? That, that is a great question. So the Library of Congress does do some work with preserving digital information. Um, but what they've been able to do, they work with the National Archives and Records Administration and the Government Publishing Office along with uh, some other institutions, universities, to do this giant web crawl of every government website. And they do that every four years. So you can imagine how much the Internet changes within four years. That's really not enough. But... That's what they can do given their funding levels and their staffing levels. Um, oh, it, it's every four years based on presidential administrations, right? So the idea is to uh, capture the end of a presidential term and get the beginning of the next term. Um, but, of course, so much happens in between, you know, and we have people in Congress coming and going and all sorts of other stuff. So... Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a big problem, and the issue of digital preservation um, within a presidential administration comes up so much. I mean, I was so, like, happy for a moment when Hillary Clinton's email came up, because I thought, well, we're going to, maybe from this, we will develop a policy where we'll just say, you know what, from now on, it's going to be crystal clear that if you work, you know, f within the White House, your email gets saved like this. Um, but then, of course, we hear that in this administration, there's all sorts of people who are using uh, RNC emails and it's not being routed through the proper channels. So these uh, agencies like the Library of Congress or the National Archives and Records Administration that so clearly have a role here, they're just not able to compel other government agencies or the White House to do what is right. Yeah, and a lot of that is funding. Just to add quickly to that, this is why uh, organizations like the Sunlight Foundation and ProPublica are doing some really incredible work about um, tracking, um, you know, who's using these kinds of emails um, and advocating for greater transparency. The Sunlight Foundation takes its uh, its name from the quote of, sunlight is the 
best antiseptic? Is that a, I can't remember what the disinfect it. Thank you. Uh, so the more sunlight and more you can see, the better. I guess not so much of a question as a comment. Uh, has it not occurred to everybody that this thing is very U.S. centric from the way we're discussing it? Um, given the propensity for certain governments around the world to be very interested in what we do, do you not think that there are certain groups of people out there data mining our stuff anyway? And it would be interesting to know what they've done with it. Right? My basic attitude is we should save everything, okay? Because if you start saying, I've switched tack now, if you start saying about sustainability, what do we save and what do we uh, neglect to save, then we're just in the same situation as the, the folks that say, oh, we don't need the climate data, let's throw that one out. You know, who, who gets to choose what we save and who gets to choose what we don't save? So that's my question, really. Anybody want to respond to that? I think one of the challenges is that we used to trust the government to do this, and there's reasons not to do that, as Catherine said. Like the, the scale and the, the investment, I think, has changed. But I think one of the other things that's fundamentally changed is we as Americans don't trust our government anymore to do the kinds of things that we used to trust the government to do. And, and, and that's a, a dramatic shift. Well, I think at some point we had more trust in our government than we do now, and I think, that's, I think we're starting to see the effects of that as we go forward. Your comment made me think of, um, so we've got this problem of uh, our publicly facing government information we're not saving, but yet we also know that we've got these agencies like the NSA that if you just like put civil rights aside and just think about it from a digital preservation standpoint, they're doing amazing work <laughs> collecting all sorts of things, and they have a real global scope um, it, uh, that information may not ever help us and we might not ever see it but uh, yeah that, that's what your comment made me think of so just, just briefly to add um, you know a lot of these I think for the focus on the US is because you know if someone from the EPA you know Scott Pruitt or whoever he would install um, they don't have jurisdiction on on data that's housed on foreign servers in the same way. And so we're focused on what things are here that we can preserve. The Internet Archive was fundraising to build a mirror of their site in Canada just to, to avoid that jurisdiction problem. But at the same time, a lot of these climate organizations are part of uh, sort of world data organizations that have things replicated across multiple continents and things like that. So um, so part of it is practical, but also there is there's built into this um, that is not just focused in the U.S., yeah, this was uh, this was something that we were talking about at our table. Um, what I haven't heard anybody talk about is some centralized index, uh, and and this is uh, from two different perspectives. One is that I I hear all of you talking about well what we're trying to collect and whether it's through web craw web crawling or from specific agencies, and that n nobody knows as, as far as what I've heard you talk about uh, what everybody else is doing. And that you need some sort of centralized index. So one is that um, you you know what hasn't been backed up, and what other people are working on, and you may want replicas of those. And okay, so that's that's the front end of it. And the reason for doing this is so that individuals have access to it in the future. And 
if I or my group or someone else's group is interested in some kind of data, where do you find it? Where is it stored? Who collected it? And uh, so there's something like, is something like that, is there any kind of coordination, some si kind of centralized integration of all this information? So I guess it's half comment, half question. So I'll, I'll take that first. That, you know, so I showed a little slide of climate.data.gov, and of course that's just a piece of data.gov, which is in a certain way the, the centralized index that you're asking about. Uh, it's a piece that, I mean, I think these guys will probably agree that in all aspects of data preservation, people long ago abandoned the idea that they could kind of collect everything in one place. So <coughs> instead, the concept has become sort of federation. You've got lots of different places where data are stored, and you, you build an index that kind of links to them. So if you go to data.gov and click on a link, what will happen is not that you won't get something that looks the same as what appears on this website. You'll go to an agency which will have its own way of presenting data and or whatever else it presents and it may look very different and be much more difficult to navigate than the thing that you see on that screen. So you know, people were at least moving in that direction within the government until this uh, change happened, and what remains to be seen is what, what will happen to that index. I think what you're asking about, really, though, is the other side of this. You know, after we preserve data that were once provided for us by the government, who is going to manage that and provide it for us in some way that we can actually uh, get our grip on? Short answer, libraries. <laughs> um, yeah, I think just to echo what... what <laughs> Well, I, I think libraries are sort of a logical place because we have had this role for so very long. Like there's there's a real, hopefully, a trust in libraries to to sort of think on the long term and to make information accessible. Uh, that's what we've done for for thousands of, of years, which is one of the reasons I think where we're getting into the the data game is we recognize data really ought to be considered the first class citizen uh, of information objects and treated much in the same way that we treat articles and books as sort of a, an object of value for for research. So, but you know, as we've been discussing here. There's, there's a lot of challenges to, to even just creating sort of a centralized index, one being just the scale, the enormity of the amount of information that's produced uh, by the government alone. Uh, it, it's really difficult, as, as Catherine said, to sort of know really what, what's out there in the first place to pull it all together. And also, as Catherine said, there's no sort of coordinating agency or way to compel people to contribute to this larger index, especially in ways that would enable it to, to be cross-functional. You know, as, as Paul alluded to, um, different agencies do different things with their data for different reasons to try to communicate with their particular community of practice. So the data may be marked up or described or the metadata um, may be very different from one agency to the next and pulling together a centralized index where that's all sort of cross-referenced in ways that make it easy to find is not a small task at all. Yeah, I think what you described, it, it, it would make so much sense. That's the way it should be. That should exist and then we should work from that. Um, but I don't think it does exist. I think it's going to be on us to kind of build it and then work from there. Um, so now I guess, yeah, let's get some of these questions out on the floor and then we'll let our experts address them. Hi, uh, my question comes out of both what pretty much all of you and my small group talked about and basically the intersection of the technical and political and in particularly trying to prioritize what data to preserve and um, 
Paul, like you talked about the going after the climate change tracking satellites, um, and that's an, a budget item, so that's um, relatively easy to track or, or yeah, but, and that's a big item. So, but uh, how easy, how important do you think that is, um, and easy to track some of these things, and how how important do you think that is in prioritization? That is, I mean, we don't. It's hard to predict what maybe all the what Trump or other Republicans or anyone who's anti-science might go after. Um, and it does seem like EPA and environmental stuff has naturally come to the fore. That just seems like it's so maybe so easy for them to delete and just so crucial. But um, how do you think we can kind of anticipate those things? And, and you know, you talk about sunshine, but other ways. Okay, I'm going to get a couple of a couple of other questions out for those of you who had questions. Let's ask the questions, and then I know there was one over here, sir. Um, are are you also? I mean, climate science obviously is what we've talked about, but are you also looking at things like um, Bureau of Labor Statistics, CDC records, occupational safe and, uh, safety and health, things like that? If you think about the, the task that you set for yourself, uh, maybe may limited only to worrying about climate change data, what, what fraction of, of what you think needs to be accomplished do you realistically think you're going to be able to do? And I'll get one more question out on the table, and then I'll let these guys go at it. Uh, no one mentioned the article <clears throat> in which um, these, uh, well, several individuals that work at uh, NOAA and um, the um, EPA said that files have been have disappeared, and they have not found a way to access them. I think that some of you, what you said would uh, sort of resonate with this, but no one said specifically or made specific reference to it. So I'd like to know what you think about it. So on the last point, we've been working with people, uh, sometimes within a given organization and sometimes um outside of it to identify uh, what things people would be worried about. Um, there was the article in The Guardian uh, last week or two weeks ago about, you know, Donald Trump is deleting my citations or something like that. And um, I tweeted at her right away and said, if you're worried about something, tell us. If there's something that you need to, um, you know, you're worried about and you think needs preservation, whatever that is, talk to us. Let's get in the pipeline. Let's get a transfer. Um, there's ways to do it. Uh but now with, I think the federal freeze was listed today, was lifted today. Um, but, you know, there were people under gag orders uh, with this. And so they couldn't talk to groups like us. And so, you know, we've we've done a lot of, of outreach to try and figure out where this is and working directly with scientists um, who may have copies on their own, you know, their own servers that necessarily aren't in, you know, a government server. So, you know, it's it's a sort of complicated dance that that we're trying to navigate um, with that, um, and just to say, the, yes, we're working out there with environmental data. Um, we're, you know, when this sort of distributed crowdsourced efforts, like, what are you concerned about? So the question we asked you of what are you concerned about, multiply that times many, many millions of people, um, and this is where we're starting to build this web and this network of, of, of data, of information. Um, there's a group at Cornell who has been downloading terabytes of, of exactly Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, data, um, and so being able to figure out how that can be preserved as well as we develop this method sort of on the fly 
Um, I think, and Paul, you can address the, the first question. Well, that's a really, it's just a really hard question because everyone, you know, the priorities of different scientists are going to be different. Uh, you know, the, so there, in terms of climate data, there are, there are two major categories. One is all the kind of land and ocean temperature data collected by instruments on land and at sea. The other is satellite data. Satellite data are much, much larger, in many orders of magnitude larger than the historical uh, surface records, which are really just you know a few megabytes in in total. And then the you know, the satellite data are huge, so that's a that's a harder problem. But those have already been archived at a couple of other a couple of places other than the satellite centers. Um, so I, I'm not all that worried about them. I think I'll just just stop there and pass it on. And maybe talking about the sort of the fraction of how much we can actually reasonably uh, respond to and, and preserve. So I, I think to sort of revisit your question in a slightly different way, um, it, it's really difficult to know sort of which data to go after, but also how to preserve that data in a way that that retains its value. It's 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 hard to predict the future as to how people are going to want to use this data, and it's tough because the decisions you make early on affect its utility later on down the line. So it's it's really just trying to sort of plug in and, and maintain an awareness of the kinds of research that are happening and anticipate as best you can how to structure the data to to sort of go where the field's going. I wanted to say something in response to your uh, comment about, like, what other kinds of areas do we need to worry about? And uh, there's a bill in the House right now that would prevent HUD from maintaining uh, or making accessible data on racial disparities in access to affordable housing. So if this bill passes then years from now we're not going to be able to to track that you know so i think i think it's something we really have to think about even more broadly than just climate change you know i could imagine our education data um, being changed to like align with the secretary of education's desires um, and paul mentioned funding i mean this is this is a big area of how uh, you can harm data collection is to not fund the data collecting agencies at the level they need to be. So, you know, hopefully our next census gets funded well and is, um, you know, still the, the same kind of process that we've had going back to 1790. I mean, I think, I think the great issue that all these questions raise for us is what happens when we have a government that we can't trust? And what steps into that position and I think the, you know, of the public institutions we have that are trustworthy, I think you will find that libraries are right up there with science and scientists as one of the most trusted institutions in our society. So that is really the logical place for us to deliver information like this at a time in at such a time in history. The challenge is back to Catherine's point about funding is that we also are dependent on funding. We have a limited amount of resources to do a lot of things. And so, you know, it's not that we don't have resources. It's that we have to choose how to allocate them. So do we devote more money to curating government data at the expense of buying journals uh, for faculty to research uh, off of? So it's we have choices, and, and funding really plays a large part in that as well.
As you were talking, uh, I was thinking about museum collections, which is something that I'm more familiar with curating, and how sometimes we don't know the questions that our objects will answer. We have objects that were collected before we knew about DNA, and we're taking DNA samples from those objects, and they're answering questions that the people who collected them could never have even imagined. And I think the same is is probably and likely true of our data sets. Um, so I, I think that prioritization question is really gets to the heart of uh, there's some deep thinking that that maybe needs to happen there. Um, I'm not going to be doing that deep thinking, but um, maybe some of these folks are. And I just want to say thank you to them for coming out and talking tonight.